1999, NATO bombed Belgrade to coerce Serbia into accepting uh, a peace plan for Kosovo. Uh, we're not bombing Moscow. It's as simple as that. And one major reason why we're not bombing Moscow is that, you know, Russia is a nuclear country. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a podcast series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Muzerg and I'm your host for this show. Today we are going to talk about nuclear blackmail and deterrence in the context of Russia's war in and against Ukraine. And to do this, I am joined by an eminent expert on the issue, Bruno Tertre. Bruno is Deputy Director of the Foundation for Strategic Research, or FRS, which is a French think tank. His areas of expertise include geopolitics and international relations with a specific focus on strategic and military affairs. And for what is of particular concern to us today, nuclear deterrence and non-proliferation. He is also a senior fellow at Institut Montaigne, uh, which is another French think tank and scientific advisor for the French government's High Commissioner for Planning. Finally, he is also the author of numerous books and articles about the nuclear weapon, including uh, this spring Principles of Nuclear Deterrence and Strategy, a paper that was published by the NATO Defense College, and even more recently, another paper called What Future for Nuclear Deterrence, which was published both in French and in English by our partners Fondapol. Bruno, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. So um, maybe we should start with, for full disclosure, uh, we are recording this episode of October 19th, and it, it will be out in the evening of October 23rd in the United States. It may very well be that it doesn't have much incidence on our conversation, but I guess it might be useful for our listeners to know because things are uh, moving fast in Ukraine uh, and in Russia right now. So uh, taking that into consideration, it looks like over the past few months, Bruno, we have got used to thinking again about nuclear escalation and de-escalation as well as a distinct possibility because of Russia's war in Ukraine. Just a few days after the, the start of the invasion, Vladimir Putin ordered nuclear forces to go into a special mode of combat duty. This summer, Russian troops have been shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear plant and in September, when he announced the mobilization of 300,000 reservists and the annexation of four Ukrainian regions, Vladimir Putin claimed that he had, and I quote here, various weapons of destruction, end quote, and that he was ready to, quote again, use all the means available to us, adding, I'm not bluffing. So I'm not a poker player, but I'm not sure that claiming that this time you're not bluffing is necessarily the best strategy to get people to believe you. But the reality is also that Putin truly has these weapons at, at his disposal, and one could be tempted to believe that he is ready to use them. But let me ask the question to the expert here. Do you think that we are near that moment where Vladimir Putin may cross the nuclear Rubicon? Or maybe to, to be more blunt, how do you evaluate the odds or the risks for a first nuclear strike from Russia and Ukraine? Okay, so I think overall the risk is very low, maybe even extremely low. Uh, first of all, let's make it clear that you've been talking about two different kinds of nuclear risk. One is, you know, Putin dropping the bomb, literally, and then there's the risk of a, an accident at one of the nuclear power plants that are 
located in Ukraine, including Zaporizhia in particular. However, this is a very different kind of nuclear accident, so to say. We don't call it a nuclear accident. It's actually more like it would be a radiological disaster. It would not be a nuclear explosion. So let's make it clear that whatever may happen in Zaporizhia would be a very different thing. By the way, I've always thought, and even have, you know, I've tended to confirm what I thought, that, you know, Russia wants these nuclear plants intact. Uh, So it's not in its interest to actually bomb them in a way which would be uh, designed to destroy them. So let's go back now to the real danger. I mean, the danger that everyone's talking about these days, which is the risk of Putin using nuclear weapons. So overall, I think this risk is very low. Um, Why do I say that? Why do I believe that? First of all, I think that Putin is a rational person. He's a very unreasonable person, but he's rational. Uh, His decision to uh, invade on February 24th uh, was a rational one, based on false information, based on, you know, uh, false assumptions. But it was not, from his personal standpoint, an irrational decision. Uh, So that's the first thing to take into account, you know, perhaps the most important point. He probably knows that was he to use the bomb, he would lose his supports, uh, including international ones. I mean, China would uh, would probably say, we can't follow you there. I mean, he was almost he would almost certainly lose his power and perhaps even his life. So that's the first reason why I'm rather sanguine about the risk of nuclear use. Second reason is very simply, you know, Russia's nuclear behavior over the past six months, which is in sharp contrast with its behavior on the ground. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but... There is no nuclear blackmail. Everybody's been talking about nuclear blackmail. Blackmail is coercion. And what Russia has done so far, when you look at uh, its statements at the highest level, I'm not talking about the crazies on the, in the Russian media. I'm talking about what the Kremlin says and writes. I'm talking about what Putin, Lavrov, sometimes Petrushev uh, say. I mean, these are just what I call deterrence statements, so deterrence reminders, uh, and they are in sync or in tune with Russia's stated that. Moreover, uh, we have not seen, there is just no evidence, just zero evidence of any, um, you know, problematic or worrying nuclear forces movement uh, since February 24. Uh, There was the mention of a, you know, the famed, uh, very theatrical uh, nuclear alert, quote-unquote, of February the 27th. But that was not the nuclear alert. That was actually a very technical decision. He did not put its forces on the road. So overall, these are the reasons why I think the risk is low to extremely low. Uh, finally, I should add that, you know, who knows what the Russian military would do if he was to give the order, you know, to drop a bomb on Kherson or whatever, I mean, are we entirely certain that the Russian military throughout the chain of command would obey and implement the order? Uh, by the way, this would also be visible. This needs to be prepared. It's not a button that you push, so there would be time to prevent it. So overall, as you can see, um, as worried as I am about Russia's behavior in general, uh, I'm currently not worried about the risk of nuclear use. So I just... Sure, a small caveat. The loss of Crimea may change the perspective. I mean, from my standpoint, it would move the risk from very low 
to low. That's the way I would put it. Okay. So I mean, I find it interesting that you, you uttered the D word, right, which is deterrence. And, and that's not a word that is used very often. I mean, journalists prefer nuclear blackmail, which I guess is more, more easily understandable by people. Uh, I think, you know, in, in some other uh, circles, there, there are talks of nuclear de-escalation. But nuclear deterrence is a, a name, a specific concept about the use of nuclear weapons and, and one in which you have long career of studying. So can you tell us more about what nuclear deterrence means and basically how is it expressed by, uh, by, by, by Putin in Ukraine? And I guess maybe also by the West towards Vladimir Putin, right? Right. So once again, what Putin is doing in the nuclear domain is not blackmail. Blackmail is coercion. Coercion is not deterrence. Coercion is forcing someone to do something. Deterrence is persuading someone to not do something. Now, it's a very basic psychological phenomenon and one that you find in uh, each and every part of, you know, everyday life, literally. Uh, and when applied to the nuclear domain, it means preventing a direct military aggression against your, what they, what we generally call your vital interests, you know, the, the, uh, the essence of your country, state, population, etc., territory. Uh, so this is what nuclear distance is about. Threatening an adversary that you would do something big in case he threaten, he attacks your vital interests. Now, various countries have various ways to uh, describe and implement the concept, but overall, you know, many of them, including Russia, have the same way to prevent a major war against them. And it's called deterrence by the threat of reprisal or the threat of retaliation. The idea is that you would threaten an adversary with more, uh, even more damage than the benefit he would gain from his aggression. Now, sometimes, uh, notably in the US, people have said, have claimed that Russia has a doctrine of, quote, escalate to de-escalate. Uh, that is, they would use nuclear weapons in order to force de-escalation of the conflict. That's not a deterrence concept. That's a use concept. That's how you would use your forces in wartime. Now, interestingly enough, this concept never appears in Russia's nuclear doctrine. It does not appear. And if you take a liberal interpretation of it, I would say that this is not very different from the way Western powers think about nuclear deterrence. So overall, and even though Russia does not exactly behave as Western forces would do on the ground, that's the least one can say, I have to say that in that specific domain, uh, they're just practicing deterrence in a prudent way. Um, I think Russia has inherited a lot from the Soviet Union's view of nuclear weapons. I mean, starting in the 70s, the Soviets were really afraid of nuclear war. And I would not be surprised if you know, Russia had kept something of that strategic culture. Now, how does nuclear deterrence work in the Ukraine conflict? Well, I would say that in a way which is not very different from what it was during the Cold War, I think it bounds the, it puts limits on the uh, horizon of conflict, so to say. Look. Uh, Russia does not attack uh, NATO countries. I mean, it does attack them, but it's not. 
uh, Russia refrains from direct frontal military attack from, on NATO territory, and NATO countries are not directly involved in Ukraine, and of course refrain from attacking Russia directly. So overall, this is nuclear deterrence at work, very simply, and that's the way you know deterrence has been played during the Cold War. I would say that in a sense uh, it works, at least so far. I would say it worked. Look, I'm going to give you a very simple analogy. In 1999, NATO bombed Belgrade to coerce Serbia into accepting uh, a peace plan for Kosovo. Uh, we're not bombing Moscow. It's as simple as that. And one major reason why we're not bombing Moscow is that you know Russia is a nuclear country. Mm-hmm. Okay, very, very, very interesting, and I guess this is uh, really, you know, giving a real meaning to deterrence, which is, I guess, used by many people in, in many, in many different ways, and that's that, that's a good thing. When it comes to the the September speech of of Vladimir Putin, this, you know, annexation of the the four Ukrainian regions, which, by the way, Russia does not control in full; it controls neither of these four regions in full, and this, you know, sort of. Maybe, you know, it was not necessarily even a veiled threat because, as I, I mentioned in the quote, there was no mention of nuclear, right? There was just a mention like we have weapons that can destroy large areas, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, w- when it comes to, I, I don't want us to try and do an exegesis of, of, of what Putin is, is saying. I'm not a criminologist. Do you think that this is basically a way, I mean, how, how do you interpret it? Because from, from what I hear from you, this is, I mean, it's not that it's hot hair because he hasn't said that, you know, he has nuclear weapons and can use them. But, but is it something to, that is destined just for the, the West and to kind of, you know, without saying it, to, to let the scare machine, Project Fear, uh, do its work or is it something else? Well, it's hard to say. Let me perhaps just comment what he actually said and what he did not say. Uh, first of all, and that's a, another slight caveat to my rather reassuring stance on the risk of nuclear use. Uh, in the 21 of September speech, he did say the United States created a precedent in 1945 by dropping the bomb on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that was kind of a veiled message in a sense. Like I could do, I could do, do it too. Uh, but then again, uh, what he did not say is something along the lines of, this is now Russian territory. Any encroachment of this territory would lead to severe and immediate retaliation by any available means. Now, he did say uh, something approaching, but not quite that. I mean, that it's not... I did not hear, and I've read a lot of deterrent statements, and I've practiced it, so to say, by advising various uh, you know, leaders about it. But what he said that day was is a far cry from being the clearest uh, nuclear threat ever. So once again, I think he's playing his hand carefully. And perhaps there is a kind of uh, you know, role playing between, the, between those crazies on, on Russia TV and himself. But I would not be surprised if he sought to convey the image of a quote, responsible nuclear power, because, you know, that's what, you know, Russia wanted to be before February 24th, being, you know, recognized as the equal of the United States, a responsible stakeholder, blah, 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 etc. So maybe that's an explanation. But once again, you know, he has refrained, including on September 21st, he has refrained from 
clear, direct, immediate nuclear threats. And, and indeed, Bruno, the, the day or several days after his uh, announcement and the, the, the declaration that, you know, uh, these territories were going to, to Russia, were annexed by, uh, by Russia, some of these territories were actually t- taken back by, by, by Ukraine. And, that, and there was no, indeed, no uh, retaliation, no, no nuclear or other sorts of, uh, uh, of, of retaliation. So the, the, the combat continued in the way it had previously. But I'd like now to... Uh, to focus a little bit on on the the answers on the West and what what you say what you're saying is very interesting because at least rhetorically uh, President Joe Biden seems to have taken the risk or, or to have presented the risk as much higher than 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 you just said right I mean he he talked about at the beginning of the month he talked about you know the risk of Armageddon basically to, telling the media that for the first time since the, since the Cuban Missile Crisis quote we have a direct threat of the use of nuclear weapons if in fact things continue down the path they are going, uh, end quote. So, I mean, obviously, uh, there, there is a difference, right, between, uh, between what, is, what is given to the media and, 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 and what is the realm of the, the, the dialogue between, between states, let's put it like that. But back in 1962, I'd like to maybe to, to enlarge a bit on that, because back in 1962, and even more so after the Cuban Missile Crisis, nuclear deterrence, the possibility of nuclear conflict, was quite heavily codified, even though there were near misses that a lot of people tend to forget. Uh, and, and you mentioned that, you know, this, this sort of codification in, in, in your latest publication for, for Fonda Paul, which, by the way, I really warmly recommend to our listeners. But it is also true that today the international system is, is very fluid and it provides more opportunities for escalation also because there are many more ways to fight both under and above the threshold of what we usually consider war. So my question is more general, right? Let's let's get out a little bit for, for from Ukraine for, for a few minutes. And do do you do you think that in a world where a cyber attack can lead a country to a standstill without killing anyone directly, the, the concept of nuclear deterrence remains pertinent? And do do you think that to go back to Ukraine, uh, do do you think that Russia can actually do much more harm by other types of weapons than by using the nuclear weapon? And I know it's two different questions, but I'd love to have your answer on both. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that in a sense, it's true that today's strategic and technical context provides many more avenues for escalation, and that may be, in a sense, it may lower the nuclear threshold, in fact, because countries have other avenues for escalation. Now, cyber attacks are theoretically covered Uh, by nuclear deterrence if they are massive enough. I mean, there's no evidence today that a cyber attack could lead a country to a standstill. However, uh, most major countries, including the US and France, have stated that a massive cyber attack could warrant a nuclear response. Uh, But then again, cyber is different. I mean, cyber deterrence does not work the same way uh, as nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence is different because it because it uh, it's it actually it's based on the promise of a on the quasi certainty of massive direct physical damage to a country. Um, so once again, you know, whatever one says about cyber, about threat to nuclear plants, which I don't think are serious because I think Russia wants them to be operational. Um, you know, nuclear deterrence is special. By the way, 1962 uh, is. Uh, of course, a very interesting precedent. I think the risk of nu- nuclear use was much higher in 1962. 
but the terms was not codified in 1962. Really, Moscow and Washington were still, you know, pretty low on the learning curve. Uh, and, you know, even, even though it was a very risky crisis, by far the riskiest, I think, because I don't think, you know, most of these, quote, near misses uh, were already near misses. Uh, 62 was a much more dangerous moment than uh, what we are witnessing and living today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about another that, that commented recently on the nuclear threat in Ukraine and is your president, my president, French President Emmanuel Macron. In a recent TV interview, uh, he said that Paris would not trigger a nuclear response or that a, a nuclear response would not be triggered by Russia launching a nuclear strike. And I quote here, in Ukraine or in the region, if I understand well, which the region was not precisely defined but we can guess that he meant Eastern Europe. And there's a, a sort of ambiguity here is if NATO countries are included or not, if EU countries are, 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 include, are included or not, and maybe that was made on purpose. We should also be very careful in commenting public comments, particularly those that are designed for a, a domestic audience also, because maybe you are, but at least I am not in the secret of the gods and I have no idea what the French military is telling the Russian military right now, what Emmanuel Macron is telling uh, Vladimir Putin behind closed doors. But I, I'm a little bit confused by, by by this sentence because it seems to me that, that one of the keys of nuclear deterrence is is what we would call right strategic ambiguity. And and it, it seems that, you know, some of this was lost in... Uh, 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 in, 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 in translation, but uh, the, the France is a nuclear, also France is the only nuclear power in the European Union, and it regularly calls for the EU to assume a more strategic role to achieve strategic autonomy. I, isn't there a paradox here, or, or am, I, am I missing something? And, and maybe if you can tell us what, what Emmanuel Macron uh, wanted to say here, or what he had in mind. Yes, yes. Well, I think Macron had one goal in mind, which was to reassure the French public. Uh, the French population is currently very worried about you know, nuclear war, and that was his goal. However, uh, I don't think he played his hand well. I, he did reassure the French public, but there was a cost in terms of deterrence. I mean, this was loose talk. I mean, uh, for, honestly, I'm not going to dwell on his exact vocabulary, but this was loose talk, not talking points which were, I suspect, I don't think this was very well prepared. And the problem is that it does contradict his own narrative, according to which the French nuclear deterrent does, um, you know, protect, at least take into account Europe, including Eastern Europe. So when he said Ukraine and the region, you know, that's that's a problem, contradicts his own narrative. But once again, um, I think that one should not read too much into a hastily improvised answer to a question, which was, once again, you know, uh, really um, designed to reassure the French public. And uh, he'll probably have other opportunities to talk about that. But, you know, that's another gaffe from uh, Macron, unfortunately. Um, so I think, uh, I hope it will be uh, quickly forgotten. What he should have said, however, is I'm not going to get into hypotheticals, but what I want to say is that uh, if Putin was ever to do this, you know, he would lose. There would be, you know, consequences of epic proportions for Russia and for him personally. That's what I wish he would have said. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, my, 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 my final question then is, you know, what, what are the scenarios for, for the end of this war? I think you, you, said, you said that the uh, nuclear, the use of nuclear weapon, the, the, the risk is pretty low now, but, but what would be ways for this war to end uh, without, uh, you know, without nuclear weapon? Well, I think at this point in time, it's very difficult to imagine that this war can actually end, that is, you know, not just a ceasefire or a temporary agreement with, uh, with Putin in power. I don't think it's possible. So it may be an easy answer, but I really, uh, I'm scratching my head wondering about you know, which scenarios uh, have a personal defeat for Putin, putting sane power. I think it's increasingly difficult to imagine. But, you know, let's be careful. Uh, Russia may still have surprises in store. Uh, um, we'll see, but um, I, I am right now uh, banking on the fact that this terrible, horrible war ends without nuclear use. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bruno, we are coming at the end of this show, but before I let you go, I'm going to invite you, like my other guests, to take part in our lightning Q&A session. It's very simple. I'm going to ask you three very short questions and ask you to provide three very short answers. Yes, no, couple of words, nothing more. Is this okay for you? Yes, of course. Okay, so question number one, is nuclear deterrence still a useful concept today? Yes. Question number two, is Joe Biden right to compare Russia's nuclear threats on Ukraine to the 1962 missile crisis in Cuba? Yes, but to a point only. And question number three, how likely is it in percentage that Russia uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine before the end of the war? I'm not giving any number because it's impossible to give percentage, probability percentage for events which are unique and have not happened since 1945. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a, a good answer to give. We're going to leave it here, Bruno. Thank you very much once again for your time. It was a fascinating discussion, although uh, on a pretty somber theme. Uh, to learn more about the topic and many others, uh, I encourage you to, bro to follow Bruno on Twitter. He's at Bruno Tertre and his think tank, the Fondation pour la Recherche Stratégique, is at FRS underscore org. For those of you who speak French and also those of you who speak English, actually, I do recommend his latest uh, publication for friends and partners, Fondapol, uh, What Future for Nuclear Deterrence. It is available online on Fondapol's website. And of course, I also recommend his earlier research paper this year for the NATO Defense College, uh, which came out in May. It's called Principles of Nuclear Deterrence and Strategy. And we'll make sure we put a link uh, to it in the show notes. On our side, we haven't moved. You should follow us at IRI Global, at Think Atlantic, and on our website, iri.org. This is the end of today's episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Roma Lakinu and Andras Brown for producing this series. We will be back next week, exceptionally, for a discussion about Germany with Dr. Markus Kerber, who is Chief Strategic Advisor to CDU uh, leader Friedrich Merz. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show and, of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We'll love it when we get more listeners. Thanks a lot for listening in and talk to you soon.